You are listening to a sermon from the season of Lent at Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, visit us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. One of my favorite videos on the internet is when Bobby McFerrin is at the 2009 World Science Festival. And he's on a panel that is talking about the relationship between music and neuroscience. And as the video opens up, he says, okay, I'm going to give you an example of expectations. And he stands up in front of the crowd and the audience that's there, and he stands up and he sings a note. And then he gets the audience to sing that note with him. And they match him, and these voices are resonating in the room. And then he steps over to his left a little bit, And he sings another note, slightly higher. And again, the audience is singing with him as he sings this video. And he steps back and forth a couple times. They're getting the idea that this position means one note, this position means another note, and he goes back and forth, and then suddenly he steps over a little bit further, and the audience all hits the exact same note, which he has not sung yet. And then pretty soon he starts kind of hopping around the stage and playing the audience like a musical instrument. And they all know intuitively exactly what note they're supposed to be singing because, as he puts it, it's the pentatonic scale and and everybody kind of has an intuitive sense. He says, everywhere it goes, this works. And so he's singing around and, of course, Bobby McFerrin is a talented enough musician that as he's playing the audience, he starts singing a different song over them so that he's harmonizing with them and he's... (laughs) It's, it's, the be- it's the most amazing instrument I've ever seen anyone play. It's incredible to watch this. Um, and good musicians all do this. They're all aware of the expectations that we have in music. And they use that to make songs that are satisfying and songs that are interesting. So a lot of times with musicians, they'll meet our expectations. So like when we're singing, there's certain notes or chords that we expect things to head towards. And they'll make a song that feels satisfying because it goes to just the right spot at the right time. And then, of course, if you have a master musician, they can also take those expectations and intentionally not meet them in ways that make the music more interesting and engaging to follow along. Bach is a master of this. Um, If you listen to his violin partitas and sonatas. There's moments where he's got this melody line that's going and he'll like repeat the same pattern a couple of times and then suddenly there's a note that if it was somebody else you'd think it was a mistake but it's Bach so you know that it's not. And it's it's a note that just takes you somewhere else and in that leap that it makes after you hear it you go oh yeah of course that's what had to be there but it's not what you were expecting and it's what makes the music so interesting and engaging over a long period of time. Master storytellers, of course, do the same thing. They set up and work within the expectations that you have about the story. Every genre of story has certain expectations, and sometimes the author will actually lead you and build up those expectations, and sometimes they will give you the satisfying resolution that you're expecting. If an author does that too much, we start to think of them as perhaps just a trite author, if they're always following along the exact same pattern, giving you the same expectations, and then meeting them exactly as you expect. But it can be satisfying. At other times, they'll build up expectations 
and then take you in a different direction to get you to pay attention to what's happening. Luke, the author of our gospel reading from today, is a fantastic storyteller. And in the passage that we read today, he's working with our expectations. He sets those expectations up if we're paying attention, and then he doesn't quite meet them perhaps the way that we would expect. To see that, we have to go back a little bit before the gospel reading actually started. So um, if you have your Bible and you want to follow along, turn with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3 contains Luke's account of Jesus' baptism. And it's there in verses 21 and 22 that we see him mention the baptism of Jesus. He says, Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And now Luke's setting up expectations because he is telling us that Jesus is the beloved Son of God. But then he very quickly reminds us that this is not the first time within the Scriptures that someone has been called a Son of God. Right after this account of the baptism, he goes into the genealogy of Jesus, his family history, and he traces it all the way back to Adam. And it's a little bit strange here. I think that most of us think of the genealogy as a Christmas story because we're used to the way that Matthew uses it, which seems a little bit more logical. We're talking about the birth of Jesus. Let's talk about his family history. But Luke inserts it right here, and I think one of the key reasons is because of where that genealogy ends. It ends, if you look at chapter 3, verse 38, saying, The son of Adam, the son of God. And so we have now Jesus as the beloved Son of God, and we have Adam as the Son of God. And it's after these two mentions of the Son of God that we move into our story that we read today, the incident of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. And here, too, Luke is still setting up expectations for us. In the passage that we read today, there are significant parallels between the temptation of Christ and the story of the Exodus. In fact, that's why our, our reading from Deuteronomy is even reminding of the way that God saved his people and brought them out of Egypt. The people who put together the lectionary are trying to help us to make that connection as well. But just as the Israelites, they passed through some water, they went through the Red Sea, and then they went into the wilderness, Jesus went into the Jordan, he descended into the water, and then he came up and went out into the wilderness. And the Israelites wandered out into the wilderness for 40 years, and Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days. And the Israelites, one of the first trials that they faced in the wilderness was that they were hungry. They had no bread. And their response to that trial was to grumble against God, to complain that he wasn't really meeting their expectations, that he wasn't doing what they thought that he should be doing. God fed them with manna from heaven, 
But their response was still not to have faith. And Jesus, though, the first trial, the first temptation that he faces in the wilderness, after not eating for 40 days, so if you think your Lenten fast is hard, keep it in perspective. After not eating for 40 days, Satan tempts him with bread and says, you're hungry and you're the son of God. You can turn this stone into bread. And Jesus, unlike the Israelites, who responded with grumbling, points to the word of God and says, this is what will sustain me. Jesus is the son, and he was tempted like Adam was tempted. Adam faced the devil in the Garden of Eden, and Jesus, where Adam fell, Jesus was faithful. He faced the trial of hunger like the Israelites faced their trial of hunger. And where they grumbled against God, he trusted in God, his Father. Even the temptations kind of parallel that. We have the trial of bread, but then also the next one that Jesus faces, the temptation that he faces, is a temptation for glory. Which is very like what Adam and Eve faced in the, in the garden. There's this sense that they were told, if you eat of this fruit, if you take this, what you're given, because you can be more like God. You can be worthy of, of worship in the way that God is worthy of worship. You can be independent of him. And Jesus, when he is faced with that temptation of glory, is faithful again. And then his final trial, he's taken to Jerusalem. And really this trial, in the way that Luke has structured his gospel, is foreshadowing of the ultimate trial that Jesus will face in his life. Everything in Luke's gospel is going to point Jesus towards that moment in Jerusalem. And just as he is taken to the top of the temple and told, you can come down from here and you can do it without suffering because God will protect you, Jesus is going to be lifted up high upon the cross and the mocking voice he's going to have from the soldiers is, bring yourself down from there. If you're really the son of God, you don't have to suffer if you're the son of God. You can come down. Jesus enters Adam's story, but changes the ending because he's faithful. He becomes the true Adam, the truly perfect man. Jesus enters Israel's story, but he changes the ending. He is truly the chosen one, the one who is faithful to God as Israel was supposed to be faithful to God. And it's really important that we understand that this is not just some literary trick that Luke is using to make us see this and make, make all these connections and parallels. Luke structures us for us to see these parallels, but it's a little bit, but it's more than that because Paul reminds us that it is in this entering into this story and Jesus being faithful to it to the end is actually what gives us our hope. If you look at Romans chapter 5, Beginning in verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, 
but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. He's looking at Adam as the representative of all humanity. He sinned, and from that point forward, sin reigned in us until we get to Jesus, because sin did not reign in him, and he broke the cycle of sin that has enslaved people from the very beginning. And in verse 18, Paul says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And Paul, of course, when he talks about the obedience of Christ, is looking primarily at the cross. But here, even in this passage, as Jesus faces these trials and temptations, he is foreshadowing the faithfulness that is going to come. We are looking forward to the fact that Jesus has entered into the story of Adam. Jesus has entered into the story of Israel, and he has changed the ending. And this is not something that is only true of these historic characters of Adam and Israel. Because Jesus has entered into our story so that we can enter his. Jesus has entered into our story so that we can enter his. Because we too experience temptation. We too face trials where we are tempted to satisfy our desires. Where we are tempted to seek after glory. We are tempted in all sorts of ways. And the scriptures make it clear that the fact that Jesus faced these same trials is important for the fact that he is our representative before God. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It's even important in the way that Luke tells this account. It ends with Jesus has faced every temptation. The three temptations that he faces are in some ways representative of the entirety of temptation, all the possibilities of temptation. It's reminding us that Jesus, as he has faced and triumphed over this, has faced temptation at its very root, at its very heart, and he has been faithful. And we are able to enter into this story to make Jesus' story our own rather than the story of Adam, rather than the story of slavery to sin. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4 says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. As we have entered into the baptism of Jesus Christ, that is the moment where we have entered into his story, and his story becomes ours, where our story becomes his. We enter into his faithfulness. This is the hope of the gospel that we have. 
And it's over and over repeated in the gospel. If you want to talk about our hope being that we are in Christ, you could look to Ephesians 2, you could look to Colossians 1, Colossians 1, you could look to 1 Peter 1. Over and over again, it reminds us that this is our hope. This is what we depend upon, is that we are in Christ. And it is at the moment of baptism that we are marking that and saying, this is now our story. And it's more than just this is now our story. Just as Adam was the son of God, and Israel is actually called the firstborn of God, the son of God in the scriptures. As we identify with Christ, as we make our story in Christ's story, we too are sons and daughters of God. Romans 8, chapter 15. I mean, Romans 8, verse 15. Um, says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11 says that the one who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are of the same sort, and so Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. Jesus entered into our story so that we could enter into his, that he could call us brother and sister, that we could be known as sons and daughters of God. And this means that as we face trials and temptations, because we are in Christ, because this is our story, our story is in the one who is victorious over sin, not the one who succumbed to it, not the one who fell to it. Because of that, we can persevere as he did. We can be faithful in the midst of of our trials and our temptations. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. There's that idea that, again, we are born into a hope because we are in Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you hear these words that we are to be tested, but what it is to, to happen to us is we are not tested and then you're going to stumble. You're tested and you're going to fall. It's you are tested so that the genuineness of your faith might be proven. This is what is true if we are in Christ. And this is more than just an exhortation to moral behavior. This is not just a, a, a cheap version of try harder and you can do it. You can overcome the things that you face. 
This is a rewriting of the story. We are no longer part of the old story where God's people fail and fall. We're in a new story where we can have real and true victory over sin because Christ has entered into our story so that we can enter into his. And when we face temptation, we can do so as he did in the power of the Holy Spirit. One of the most remarkable things about the encounter with Jesus and the devil in the wilderness is that he faces that temptation even though he has just been told that he is the beloved son of God. He faces that temptation as a man. When the devil comes before him, he doesn't reveal his glory and say, be gone with you. He doesn't cast him away. Instead, he faces him as a faithful man, pointing to the word of God and saying, I will trust my father. He knows the scriptures well, and he uses that to hold on to the how he is going to face temptation. But he's doing so in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's really important here to see that the Holy Spirit leads him as well into the wilderness to face these trials. This isn't Jesus just going again and doing something of a, I think I'm going to take on this task on my own. He is following faithfully in the power of the Holy Spirit. And just as he faced this temptation as a man, and he triumphed over the devil as a man, we can do the same thing. There's sometimes that we get this idea that, well, Jesus was the Son of God, right? Of course he triumphed over the temptation. That was inevitable. It probably wasn't even very hard for him. There's a wonderful quote from C.S. Lewis that talks about the difficulty of temptation. And it says, No man knows how bad he is till he has tried very hard to be good. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. The only complete realist. Christ knows what it is to be tempted. And he was faithful to God. And in doing this, through his death and resurrection, through entering into his story, he tells us that we too can face temptation, and it will not be easy. In fact, we even see in the temptations that Christ faced that oftentimes the temptation that happens to us is not something that's some way of like obvious evil that we're going to reject. It's taking a path where things are easier, it would be easier to not be hungry. It would be easier to 
receive the worship of the nations. It would be easier to avoid suffering. But it's a path that is easier in disobedience to God. I want to make it clear here that not all paths that are easy are necessarily sin. We can get that idea as well in our heads as Christians, that I have to always choose the most difficult thing. If something is good for me, if I'm going to like it, then it's probably wrong. That is not the case. But it is the case that temptation often comes through things that we would like, things that would make our lives easier, things that would allow us to avoid suffering that God calls us to. But as hard as it is, as challenging as it is, church, you need to hear this over and over again because we can lie to ourselves about this as people in the church. Your defeat to sin and temptation is not inevitable. Just because we preach a message of grace does not mean that we are going to say that every temptation and trial we face is something that we, I couldn't avoid it. We can triumph over sin because of what Christ has done. Because Jesus has entered into our story and we can enter into his and he has given us the Holy Spirit that he depended on, we can walk lives that are faithful and true before God. But you can only do this when you are walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. If you try to walk under your own power, you will fail. And this is where each of us stumbles. Forget that we are given the power of the Holy Spirit, that we are in Christ, that it is His story that is our story. We face temptation and we see that it's hard and we say, I've got it this time. I can just sort of buck up. I can handle it this time. I've grown stronger. I've used a lot of good, healthy disciplines. I'm ready for it. When we do that, when we step out of dependence on the Holy Spirit, when we try to make, replace our living in Christ with living in our own strength, we are destined to fall and stumble and fail. And here's where we can get caught back in the lie. Sin is inevitable. Sin is victorious. I can't help it. There's nothing else I could have done. I'm not good enough and I'm not strong enough. Actually, those last parts are true. You're not good enough and you're not strong enough, but you all don't have to be because Christ is. And you are given his story. And what we have to do to break out of that cycle, why we enter into the season of Lent, a penitential season, and remember and focus on the sins that we have, is because we have to understand that when we are trying to live under our own power and we are not accepting grace and mercy, yes, our defeat at the hands of sin is inevitable, but we have a great high priest who stands before us who knows what, what it is to be tempted, and God is a merciful God who desires to show mercy on all people. And so we can confess our sins, confess them to God, confess them to one another, 
Confess them to me. Because when you try to keep your sins secret and hidden, you're no longer walking in Christ's story. You're saying, this is mine. I can't give it to you. And it will have power over you if you're trying to face it with your own power. But when you confess your sin, you'll find that Christ is merciful, that God is merciful, that he desires for you to be free. Then repent from your sin. Don't just name it. Turn away from it. Understand that you will face temptation again. But you do so in the power of the Holy Spirit, not under your own strength and power. This is what we are called to as people who live in the story of Christ. To recognize that sin has no power over us as long as we walk in his story. As long as we are prepared to enter into and accept the grace of God instead of trying to work through it on our own, to build things up with our own strength. You can't do that. But in Christ, you are invited to live as a son or daughter of God because Jesus has entered into your story. If you have been baptized into Christ, he has entered into your story in particular, not just the story of humanity, yours, so that your story could be his. That we enter into a death like his, but with the hope of a resurrection like his. That we die to sin, we're alive to grace. So as we continue in worship, as we go through the season of Lent, live as sons and daughters of God, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit, trusting that your story is now in Christ. And if that's where you're not yet, you have not yet made your story as a story in Christ. Understand that this offer is open to you right now. This is the hope that we are given. Accept it. Have a new end to the story as a son or daughter of God. This was a sermon audio from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church community of Gospel Hope in Fort Collins, Colorado, inviting you to join us around God's table. Find out more online at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. Now go in peace to love and serve the Lord.